You're listening to The Authenticity Show, where you get to eavesdrop on great conversations about health, creativity, and the quest for excellence. Your hosts are Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. This episode is about procrastination. And not surprisingly, Carlos and Satch take this to some pretty deep places. First off, there are strategies for dealing with procrastination and getting your ass in gear when you need to, but also some pretty deep psychological insights and physical, you know, like kinesiological insights. And Carlos and Satch are really in the zone on this one. This one's a little bit longer than our normal hour-long episode. It's about an hour and a half. Um, And we are going to be cutting up some of the pieces of this one and releasing them as separate, shorter, bite-sized episodes, like 10 minutes, 15 minutes kind of thing. So stay tuned for that. And one more thing, we've been actually putting this off for a long time. <laughs> we've, we've been meaning to do an episode about procrastination for, I don't know, a year. And, you know, we've been putting it off, putting it off for some reason, which is just so meta, but it's actually true. So anyway, here we go. Behold the wisdom of Carlos and Sash. Carlos, have you ever procrastinated? Besides just now. <laughs> I'll get back to you on that. Uh, all the time. Yeah. Why Lots do you, of times. Why do you do that, Carlos? Mm. We're going to explore some of those ideas. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> because I think some of the times when I do it, it's because I'm just simply um, going into overwhelm. Yes. You know, this is, this is like uh, probably one of the most common things I hear from yeah. other people who do it too. Yeah. It's like, you know, you go... Oh man, I got this big thing to do. And instead of taking action on it, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to worry about it. And then because I don't want to worry about it, I'll just distract myself with something else. Yeah. And then for a little while, I won't have to feel the discomfort of that thing that I want to do. Yeah. And I think we've also been trained to view procrastination as a bad thing, as some sort of character flaw. Mm. And I think some of the things we're going to explore tonight might challenge that a little bit and take a little more holistic approach at how to view that. Yeah, there's a lot of judgment, particularly self-judgment that happens when you're a procrastinator. Um, Not only have I done it, and I've heard friends do it, but as a coach, I hear people complaining to me that they're chronically procrastinating and they need help. And the thing that I hear most consistently is this sort of self-judgment, self-criticism around it. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's a word, procrastination, that brings up associated words like laziness, you know, um, things like that. And, um, you know, to, uh, you know, I'm not a big Bible quoter, but I'm going to quote Proverbs 13, four, because this is where we get these ideas, right? The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Now, I also think that there is an appropriate time to wait on things. There can be wisdom in waiting. Um, maybe we'll get to some of that too. I think so. I think that the whole idea of, um, a procrastinator is inherently lazy is just a mistake. It's not true because when they've studied this, they've looked at, um, you know, they've looked at people's brains, literally, you know, MRIs and other, other things when they, when they actually find out what's going on, uh, they find that it actually isn't related to primarily laziness. I'm not saying that you can't be lazy and procrastinate, but it's not about laziness. Mm. It's more about unmanaged emotions than anything else. Sure. You know, whatever's going on in that habit, 
of um, processing data, there's a freak out going on. There's, there's negative emotions, and it doesn't feel good when you think about those negative emotions and experience them. So procrastination is more about avoiding those, those uncomfortable feelings than it is about laziness. Yeah. Uh, you might be very, very active doing all sorts of things that are unrelated to your task. You might clean your house instead of doing that paper that you need to do. Right, which isn't lazy. It's not laziness. It yeah. just it's avoidance of the discomfort. Exactly. To fear or whatever. Yeah. And it is a battle between the limbic system and the prefrontal cortex, you know, the the part of you that has um, kind of unconsciously processing, you know, fears and, and and base emotions and things like that, those base drives is battling with the executive functions of your brain. Yeah. The part of you that just decides, you know, hey, why don't I just go do this right now? Just get it done. Or work on a little bit every day. The reason why that doesn't happen is because the emotions are overwhelming and they're unmanaged, they're unchecked. There's yeah. no strategy in place to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, you and I both throughout our lives um, have done a lot of things. We've learned a lot of things. We've accomplished plenty of things and have had to learn to sort of tame that dragon a little bit, that mm -hmm. dragon of procrastination, you know? Otherwise, um, we don't get shit done. Yeah, so we're going we're gonna to share our strategies tonight. Yeah, our, our pieces of advice for folks. Yeah. Um, so um, I'd like to first talk about precrastination. Can we do that? Yeah. Seems like we should do pre's before pros. Seems appropriate. So precrastination is a word that a lot of people have never heard of. It's a term that's used in more the world of psychology. And precrastination is similar to procrastination, but it's kind of the opposite. So precrastination would be when a person takes too little time to complete a task, when in fact, spending more time on the task would yield a better result. So um, being too diligent, um, pressing, straining a little bit too hard to get things done, fast, quick, hurry up, get it done, get it done, which sounds like our modern world today. Um, you know, procrastination, of course, means to put something off until tomorrow. That's what the word means, right? Mm -hmm. To put something off until tomorrow or to the morning. Uh, procrastination um, is just as wrong, though. And so this, for me, conjures up um, some Confucian ideas. So uh, Confucius, Kung uh, Fu right? Uh, Confucius often spoke about the doctrine of the mean, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. In Chinese, it's Zhong Yong. Right. And so Jung means like the center, central, um, the middle. Right. Um, and Jung refers to unchangingness. So Jung Jung is being unchanging and staying in the middle, what the Buddhists would call the middle path. Mm -hmm. Right. So what Confucius points out is that when your arrow falls too short of the target, that is wrong. But it is also wrong when your arrow flies beyond the target. And I like this idea of seeking more balance because I think sometimes we think that um, we're either doing a lot or we're failing, you know? And I think procrastination is, is a good thing to really start with because um, it's rushing through life. It's mm -hmm. pushing too hard. It's, it implies a certain amount of strain. And that's equally incorrect. You know, there's a time for that right? There's an appropriate time, you know, just like there might be an appropriate time to procrastinate. Um, but, uh, yeah, precrastination versus procrastination. 
Well, yeah, you mentioned um, the doctrine of the mean, and, and there's another another way I've heard that put is the seventy percent rule. Oh, in Chinese, that that if you use a hundred percent of your effort, as opposed to very little of your effort, it's just as bad because mm. then you're going to be spending time in recovery to recover any ability to act because you used a hundred percent. Yeah. But if you use 70% of what you're capable of doing, then you're asking yourself to do more than just half, right? It's, it's above that, but it's also not the full gamut of what you could be doing. Mm. And so you're searching for this sweet spot at around 70% where there isn't a large recovery uh, action that's necessary afterward. Mm-hmm. And you can maintain uh, more of a prolonged um, situation of working on whatever it is you're working on. If it's physical, working yeah. on practicing your martial arts forms or whatever, then of course you don't get so burnt out that you can't do it the next day. Yeah. Um, if it's your studies, it's the same thing, or getting those writing projects done or whatever, then you're still getting that same, you're getting a lot of work, but you're not burning out. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's holding fast to the center. Yeah. That's beautiful. I like that. The 70%. Yeah. 70% rule. That's, yeah. that's, that's wonderful. Um, I'm going to jump into something that I read in preparation for, for this uh, episode, because I think this is the right time to talk about it, mm-hmm. is it's uh, something called the Seinfeld strategy. <laughs> you ever heard of the Seinfeld strategy? Nope. Um, so the Seinfeld strategy, uh, I read about this in a, in a, a, a blog. Um, there was a comedian, a young comedian, that encountered Jerry Seinfeld at a show, and he asked him for some advice. And so Seinfeld told him that um, the best way, you know, to to have lots of material, you have to have lots of jokes. You have to have better jokes all the time, right? Excellent jokes. And so the best way to do that, he said, is to write every day. Every single day you need to do some writing. And what he suggested was get a calendar that has all of the months on one page, a one-page calendar. And every day just do a little bit of joke writing. And then every day that you succeed in doing a little bit of writing, put a big X through the calendar. And the idea is to get a chain of X's. How many chains of X's can you get in a row without breaking the chain? How many X's can you go, right? Mm -hmm. By using this strategy, you put your focus not on the result of the action you're taking, but on the action itself. So it becomes Mm process-based, right? Um, The idea is not to write great jokes all the time. The idea is to write all the time. Mm-hmm. writing all the time will end up yielding a nice result, but you're not focusing on the result. So by doing a little bit of joke writing every single day, almost every day of the year, you end up with all this great material without strain. That makes sense. Um, it's no guarantee, of course. Exactly. It's yeah. it's basically a method of helping you to get into the right zone, which is what I thought when you were saying that, is that this reminds me of one of the conditions of getting into the zone, you know, the, mm-hmm. the high performance state. Yeah. One of those is that <clears throat> you can't be like actively learning the thing you're doing, you're doing it. And you mm-hmm. also can't be, your mind can't be engaged in, in what will be, uh, it has to be engaged in exactly what you're doing. So you have to be fully present. Mm-hmm. Um, it can't be self-absorbed so that what you're doing is um, checking in and comforting self, right? To check to see, am I good enough? Or I'm really great. Either one of those extremes. Yeah. It's about 
now you're doing this action. The only thing that matters is you and the thing that you're doing. So you're basically taking your attention from the inside and putting it on the outside. Yeah. So he, the action of just writing every day. Mm-hmm. Getting, there's going to be points at which you will probably fail to do the exercise correctly. You'll probably be writing and think, oh my God, I'm not very good at this. Or, oh, that's really, really funny. I'm going to really blow them away with this one. Yeah, either I one of those dumb jokes today. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> totally. So your ego is going to kick in either to boost you up or to knock you down. But if you're just doing the, the yoga of it, the practice of it, the work of just writing, then the skill of writing gets better because you're just putting all your mental energy and your feelings outside of you yeah, and into the practice, into the thing. Yeah. So I would imagine stuff like that, doing that repeatedly day after day is going to create an ability to sense when you're in the zone versus not in the zone. And that's really the trick for learning how to step into flow states is being able to recognize when you've gotten out of a flow state and also to recognize when you're in one, just to not change anything, just keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. You know, this reminds me, um, Dan Millman, the author of the Peaceful Warrior series, mm-hmm. did a TED Talk. And he suggested that, you know, for an exercise routine, just do one jumping jack every day. I've seen that one. Yeah. That's a good one, yeah. Yeah, it's a great one. And uh, at first it sounds silly, but then you really follow the logic and you're like, well, hey, if you did one jumping jack every day, yeah. you did 365 jumping jacks a year, which is probably more than most people are ever going to do. Indeed. Right? And, then, and then by doing it, there's going to be times when you actually do feel motivated to do more than that. But your, your plan is just to do one a day. Right. You and know, if, if, yeah. if the intention is to be better at, you know, let's say motivating yourself to exercise, then the desire to want to do more is a good thing to build. Yeah, that's kind of the seventy percent rule there, right there. You know, you're you're always gaining skill because one of the aspects of the seventy percent rule I didn't mention is that what's seventy percent today will not be what's seventy percent after six months of doing the exercises. That's true. Your skill at seventy percent is going to be much higher. So, relatively speaking, it will it well it'll, it'll seem like you're still doing seventy percent of what you're capable of, mm-hmm. but what you're actually capable of has expanded. So now compared to the, a parallel universe where you were um, looking at yourself, you'd be way in advance to where you once were. Yeah. Even yeah. though it's still 70% to you, uh, to that previous version of yourself, they're going to say, that's not 70%. That's way past what I'm able to do right now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, surprise. So, yeah. Surprise. Yeah. That's you've, growth. You've, yeah. You've grown. Exactly. Beautiful. Um, so I'll bet you get a lot of people in your work, your, your um, coaching hypnosis work, um, that are probably coming to you for things that really boil down to procrastination. Oh that, yeah. Like yeah? 25% of the people I think that come in have some aspect of that that's going on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it, yeah. It's a complaint. Um, for sure. is, is this a good time to talk some, about some of that? Like how to of course. strategies and things? Yeah. So. Um, you know, I was just saying before about the emotional component. Yeah. Uh, because it's a battle between your limbic system and your executive functions and your prefrontal cortex. If you don't manage those emotions, there's really nothing else cognitively that you can do. Yeah. Um, all these things that we're talking about make really good sense once you've managed your emotions. Yeah. If you can't do that yet, like let's say you just don't have any tools for that, you just don't know what the hell you're doing, then you have to f- put yourself in a position to learn it, either <clears throat> working with a coach or a teacher or some kind of a productivity person who knows something about emotions and can help you work with that. Um, like for example, there, there's, there are associations that happen just with regard to the context that can be a problem for people. Um, let's say, for example, um, they're a business owner and 
part of what they need to do is make tons and tons of cold calls. Okay. <laughs> and they just can't bring themselves to touch that freaking phone. They're just, oh, they just feel this. As soon as they look at the phone, they come into office, all of a sudden they just pull out their Facebook on their phone and next thing you know, they're distracting themselves or they go for a walk or they need to readjust the, you know, the, the pictures on the wall are not in alignment. He thinks maybe he's going to move those around a little bit. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, let's get some music going on. You know, you just keep it distracting Sounds like yourself. a hard worker. Meanwhile, you, you lift the phone, you make a call, you get a busy signal. Okay, cool. There's your call. And then you go right back to doing, oh, let's get something to eat. Yeah. You know, let's right. get the chips out or whatever. So a lot of that is avoidance behavior. And the avoider is one of the three kinds of procrastinators that you see, you know, besides okay, yeah. there's a thrill seeker, right? Okay. There's a dopamine rush. You know, they're the people who tell you, oh yeah, I just, um, they kind of brag about, you know, I do all my stuff for the last minute and I just get it done and I get an A anyway, or it ends up being perfect. Right. Yeah. And they know it's not really good for them to do it, but they brag about it. So mm -hmm. there's, there's a dopamine rush in the extra tension that they feel and mm -hmm. then the release from having solved it. Yeah. Even though it's not the wisest way. Yeah. It's the way that gives them a dopamine rush. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. That's, that's a good way to And then there's that. the avoiders, like I'm just mentioning. They're uh -huh. avoiding something, right? They're, they're either uh, maybe afraid of um, failing. They're yeah. afraid of, of what it might mean if they succeed. Like, you know, what happens if I do all these cold calls and I get all this work and I don't know if I can handle all that. I don't want to be busy all the time. I mean, there's a secondary gain is mm -hmm. they keep themselves from being too busy because yeah. they really don't want that either. Mm -hmm. So these have to be cleared up in the values. So we'll, we'll do a lot of discussion about uh, what would it mean if you did it differently for you? You know, what would you be seeing, hearing, feeling? <clears throat> what kinds of things would be in your life? What would you be able to do once you did this? So a lot of questions I might ask because sooner or later I'm gonna touch on something that's a hot button. And you'll be able to tell mm -hmm. because suddenly their physiology shifts, their tone of voice shifts, yeah. and suddenly they're, having a feeling and I can immediately investigate that and go, hey, where did you just go right now? Yeah. Did you, yeah. is there something associated with this? You know, I'll find out if there's some kind of trigger, you know, like, like for example, um, uh, maybe they're hearing themselves say that they'll never be a success. The inner voice is telling them that, or maybe um, they picture their product not being as good as someone else's. And so then they feel uh, negative feelings associated with that. It can be any number of things, but it's basically unmanaged negative emotions. And if I don't teach them how to manage that, how to actually investigate the feelings and then change those feelings, chances are they're not going to be able to follow any instructions that would be useful. Like these wonderful cognitive strategies just don't work if they're not managing those feelings. Yeah. Yeah, so that has yeah. to be done first. Yeah, because the feeling is still there. Which yeah. is and the feeling is the reason they're not taking the action that they yeah. know they, they should be taking. Absolutely. They've got to actually vocalize and list what those things are. If they if they just say, I don't know, that's not good enough. Yeah. Um I have to probe deeper into why that might be because I don't know. As my preschool teacher used to say, I don't know is not an answer. Yeah. <laughs> so I still say it to this day. It's very true. Yeah. Um, I don't know means great. Let's find out. Yeah. Let's investigate. Beautiful. Let's see what yeah. that is. Mm. If you know what it is, it gives you a moment of um, maybe having a handle. And you can 
hold on to it. You can move it around. You can lift it up. You can take it away. Yeah. If you don't have any kind of handle, there's no surface to get your fingers underneath, uh, metaphorically. Uh-huh. Uh, how do you move it? Yeah. Well, so like, for example, maybe somebody says, uh, I don't want to pick up the phone because I'm afraid I'm going to upset people when I call them. Yeah. You know, like something like that. Like if they don't verbalize that out loud and really agree, okay, this is the reason I'm not reaching for the phone. I don't want to upset the person on the other end or something like that. Absolutely. And, you gotta... and there are, you know, dozens of possible responses to that mm-hmm. um, from, my, from my perspective. Yeah. Because I don't know why they feel that way. So okay. my questions will be centered on getting a little more of a sense of um, what's the structure behind that feeling. So what are they doing inside to create that feeling? Mm. Is it really a limiting belief that they've had since they were younger? Is this really related to some experiences that they've had that needs to be addressed? Are there cognitive questions that need to be put forth to get them to drill down into that feeling that you just described? Mm-hmm. For everyone, it could be really different. Yeah. yeah. Um, the same end result, but different uh, root cause. And so depending on that, I might use a strategy to change the belief. I might use a strategy to teach them how to change their feelings. Um, I might uh, get them to break down the idea using other beliefs. I might get them to reorder their criteria for what, what's most important to them. In other words, deal with it at a values level. And almost always, I'm going to deal with identity because their narrative, what it is that they're saying to themselves about who they are and why they're there and what they're doing, originates from who they think they're being. So if I don't deal with that, it won't change. Mm. Not permanently. Yeah. Yeah. Because, like, who are you being when you are the kind of person who has this kind of business that requires this call, but then you tell yourself, I can't do it because it's going to make, it's going to disappoint people. It's going to make people upset. You understood what was involved with having this kind of business. And now you're saying, now that I've created this business, I don't want to do the very thing that I knew I'd have to do. Well, is that true? Or are you just reneging on something, you know, that you maybe decided a long time ago? Um, Because at some point the path has to narrow and you've got to d- figure out what it actually is. Is it really that they don't feel comfortable upsetting someone? Or is it because of some other reason? Like they're afraid that they won't know what to do when they get massively successful. There's all sorts of subtle things that happen along the way too. Like for example, if there's an association that they've made between someone who makes phone calls like that and something negative they experienced well, then that's going to have to be cleaned up. If they think of everyone who makes these cold calls is always a swindling, selfish jerk. Trying to steal my money. Yeah, Yeah. trying to steal people's money. And then that conflicts with their internal sense of who they are. Mm -hmm. Then that has to be cleaned up. Because obviously those two ideas can't coexist very, very well without problems. Right, right. You know, speaking of um, internal ideas and sensations and things that people have feelings about, you know, mm-hmm. whatever it is that's stopping a person from moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, this might be a fun time to uh, review the uh, Buddhist understanding of the minds. Yeah. Right? Because um, this is sort of the mechanism as to what is going on, right? And uh, we, we've both learned this before. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, the, the, the Buddhist uh, way of looking at it is you have these four major aspects of mind, right? And so uh, it, it, it goes like this. This is the way we were taught. Uh, the first type of mind is the type of mind that deals with consciousness. And probably the best way to say that is is cognition, to cognize something. So um, in, in, in the Buddhist way of looking at this is that each major sense in the body has its own mind. There's a visual mind, an auditory mind, an olfactory or smell mind, a gustatory or tongue mind, and then a body, a body sensation mind, like your skin, your joints, your muscles, and what you feel inside. And then there's a mind sense, which is the generation of thought, right? So um, basically whatever happens is um, you perceive something from, from one of these senses, right? And then you cognize it. Ah, something's come to the visual field, right? Then the next one is called sanya in Pali. And that is, it's, you know, perception or to recognize something. So step one, something enters your brain, you cognize it. Oh, there's a sound. Step two is there's another aspect of mind that recognizes it. And recognizing it requires requires conditioning from the past. Mm-hmm. Right? Like um, You need an association. An association, yeah. The, the first time, just like our, our Taiji teacher always says, the first time... The, the kid gets smacked on the head by the dad. They're just surprised. The second time the dad reaches up to smack them, they cower their head. And they put their hand up to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yep. um, uh, so there's cognition and then recognition. So recognition is going to be, um, uh, oh, these sights, sounds, people, words are associated with things of the past. And last time I came in contact with something like this, it was bad. It was negative. Or last time I came in contact with the same thing. It was wonderful and pleasant. Mm-hmm. So we have cognition, then recognition. Then the next one is called Vedana. And Vedana means um, sensations. Mm. And so then the mind, the third part of the mind, Vedana, sens- the sensory part of the mind, then creates a bunch of sensations that the body acts as the backdrop for. So... I, so, so let's say Carlos says, Sat, you're a big fat ninny. I cognize that words have come into my system. I recognize that those are derogatory terms. Then the third part of mine says, I will create a pattern of negative sensations that ripple through the body. The fourth and final piece of this is sankara. Um, that's the part of the mind that reacts and creates mental formations or like somatic formations inside the body, um, which is essentially me saying bad or good, or I hate this, right? I want this, or I don't want this, right? And then what that does, yeah. And then what that does is that causes the sensory part of the mind to create another pattern of sensations that we react to again. Mm-hmm. And then that creates another pattern of sensations which we react which which we react to again, right? And so these four aspects of the mind have to do with conditioning, right? And I think it's neat to point out that the techniques that you do, when you do your uh, NLP, hypnosis, these kinds of things, you're helping a person to decondition that part of their mind that has learned that it it needs to 
respond automatically to things. Exactly. You know, and, and yeah, and, and there are strategies to do this. There are ways there are. of doing it. There yeah. are. Um, one of them is called a collapsed or collapsing anchors. Mm. So an anchor is when you have formed uh, an association to a stimuli of some kind. Okay. You can call that an anchor, a hypnotic anchor, or an NLP. We just say anchoring, right? It's when you when you create some kind of very strong association to an experience, usually a feeling, a strong feeling or an mm-hmm. emotion, right? Um, an example of that would be uh, from probably everybody's experiences. Um, when you get used to a certain way of being touched by a lover, for example, mm-hmm. there's a part of you that as soon as they touch you in that same way, if it's the same exact way that, that you felt many, many times before, you're going to instantly feel more or less like you felt all the other times they did that. Mm. If it's consistent, it's the same with, um, <clears throat> negative anchors. So you have, you hear the same tone of voice associated. So bad tonality combined with, a, you know, a negative experience equals this, um, uncomfortable feeling. So then the, that repeats a couple of times, then a month passes by and they use the same tonality. Even if they don't intend to be rude or something like that, you're going to feel the association of the past kick in and you're going to feel a visceral sensation in your body of this change that, you know, I don't like this. I don't feel good about this. Um, so anchors happen all the time. The collapsing of anchors means that you take, you have to have something that, that's considerably strong and you have to, um, in a sense, blend it with the negative experience hmm. to such a degree that it, it lessens or completely collapses the um, association. So for example, um, you know, to use a, an evocative or provocative example, uh, if you heard bad tonality, and you created this association, and every time you heard that bad tonality, you got this reaction. And then you took that same voice in a whole different situation, and you heard that voice right at the moment of your orgasm. Okay, (laughs) yeah. Chances are, uh, you've done that once or twice. Uh, When you hear that tonality again, you'll have a a whole new association. Yeah, with the tone of that voice. Yeah, (laughs) I'm not saying that you necessarily will like the voice, but Uh I can say that it'll probably reduce, if not completely abolish, whatever previous association was there, Mm -hmm. because it'll be replaced by the new one. So we we blend um, a very very potent um, sensation that's positive with a negative association and attribution. And then when you do them, fire them off together, then in the future, when you fire off that original stimulus, you'll now have a combination of the two things together. Mm-hmm. And if it's strong enough, positive, it'll actually diminish the negative and take over completely. Mm, that's interesting. It's really wow. useful because basically yeah. we're, we're forming negative anchors all the time um, in relationships and in life. So if you know how to collapse the anchor by adding something good there, yeah, um, it's like, uh, one more example of that. There was someone in, in, in my life who you know um, passed on, passed mm-hmm. out of this existence into another place, wherever mm-hmm. that is. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were a lot of places that I enjoyed being with this person. Yeah. And so when I, <clears throat> when I went to those places, 
I couldn't help but feel overwhelmed with sadness and mm-hmm. grief. And very hard to go to there, yeah, uh, to yeah. those places. So after a while, I just kept repeating it and uh, finding other things to pay attention to, because I knew that I needed to change my neurological response to it. And then in some cases, I went with close friends to these places, okay, with the idea that this was going to be a little uncomfortable at first, but that I'm going to create new anchors, right, right. In essence, collapsing the old anchors so that I could do what I needed to do without um, feeling like, well, I have to avoid, you know, 50 different places in Orange County because they're associated with somebody that I, I miss terribly. Right. You know? Yeah. So this is, yeah. this happens, this helps with breakups and it helps with uh, all sorts of stuff. You know, you have to know how to do that. Yeah. You know, um, it's interesting. Uh, it's come, comes full circle back to what I was just talking about with the uh, Buddhist way of looking at the mind, mm-hmm. right? Is that, remember that last part of the mind is, is reactionary. Yeah. Right. It's forming reactions. So I think to interpret that in a modern way, you could say that that's like carving out neural pathways, mm-hmm. right? You carve out, you, you walk a neural pathway enough, it becomes powerful and strong. And it's associated with a lot of things. Like when you talk about an anchor, there's a neural pathway for that anchor. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, those, the, and, and, and Buddhism talks about those three, um, reactions as as like a there's a a low middle and a severe version of each one of those so wow. there's the reaction that is the finger drawn on water you know you you draw it and it disappears immediately there's the second one which is like drawing your a line in the sand it's there it lasts a little longer but it's easy to to go away and then the, the third one is chiseling something in stone mm-hmm. that's a line that's very hard to go away yeah and um uh I can't help but but think of those three things because like you're talking about using some strategies that are dealing with um, the deeper reactions that people generally have, and most people don't know what to do about those, right? You know, and and there are ways. NLP is loaded with methods for approaching that. Mm-hmm. Um, I only mentioned one, but I mean, uh, you know, a, a visual swish or a kinesthetic swish, you know, where yeah. you. You're, you're changing an attribution um, so that you instantly go from, uh, instead of you know seeing the stimulus or that job that you need to do and then instantly feeling like, oh crap, I got to avoid it. Mm-hmm. You would see this um, task ahead of you and instantly step into this amazing version of yourself that thinks that procrastination is totally passe and not even a thing. Like you're way past that. <laughs> yeah. You've already yeah. stepped into your awesome future and you feel compelled to to be moving from that place uh-huh. and you identify to the you identify with this compelling yeah. you know self and this compelling vision of the world instantly the moment you have that experience. So that's there are methods for creating new associations. Um and you know uh, another one would be something like a uh, a chaining of anchors. Mm. So what do you do when what you're trying to feel in relation to something seems really far off? Like it's really hard to imagine yourself getting there mm-hmm. in one step. What do you do is you create steps in between. Yeah, there you and go. And then once you create steps in between that make sense to you neurologically, meaning you can run yourself through that pattern and go, yeah, I can see how I would get from point A, which is totally procrastinating and doing jack shit and nothing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. To 
the final step, which is taking action, not thinking about taking action, mm. but just literally getting your ass in gear and doing it. Yeah. Going from point A to point B might not be workable for some people. Mm-hmm. If it's a very, uh, if it's that third level etched in stone, like you're talking about mm-hmm. in Buddhism, there's no way. Mm-hmm. However, cut that in half, ask yourself, what is the state of mind that would be in between, you know, being totally stuck in the mud yeah, ver- and totally taking action? Mm-hmm. There might be a place in between. And then once you've created that, you can also ask yourself, well, what would be in between the place in between and the first place? So okay. essentially, you first you have an A and a B, then the, the B becomes, you know, D, Okay. Or it becomes C, actually. C, yeah. And the middle one becomes B. Uh-huh, yeah. And then you realize, wait a minute, I might need another step to get to the middle place, which is the B. So now I'm going to make a spot in between point A and point B, and now I'm going to push that B way over to the right, and now I've got mm-hmm. my B, which is halfway in between the first place and the second place. Right. Does that make sense? So now you've got yeah, yeah. three points to get, uh, and then you get the middle. Uh-huh. And you might also need another one on the other side of the middle, in between taking action and the middle place. Okay. So now you've got A, B, C, D, E, right? <laughs> right, right, right. And then when you can do that and your, and your body gets the sense that this is totally doable, I just created some steps, I created some stepping stones across the river, mm-hmm. then you can speed it up and get what we call a shunt. Okay. Just like a shunt connects one your, spot to another yeah, instantly, a right? Heart shunt. It's a heart something. shunt, right? Yeah. It makes the fluid instantly go to the other side, despite yeah. the blockage, right? That's mm-hmm. what it does. Same thing. You get the first association, like in other words, anytime I feel uh, the feeling of needing to procrastinate, I instantly run through very quickly these four steps and I end yeah. up taking action. It's yeah. almost as if now the very stimulus that you once uh, saw that got you to feel procrastination. Mm-hmm. Now, instantly, whenever you see that, whenever you feel it, even for a brief second, you instantly move right into taking action. Yeah. That's so, great. Yeah. It, it's that. a form of rehearsal, that. mental rehearsal. Yeah. Um, you know, that's very similar. It reminds me of um, the strategy of just knowing that, hey, I'm not going to do the entire task right now. I'm yeah. just going to take the first step. You know, <laughs> it really is. Yeah, yeah. Which is like like saying, okay, so um, I need to write this paper. So uh, I'm feeling overwhelmed by writing this paper right now, and I really want to do other things. But in order to do that, I have to like get my laptop open and get the computer turned on. Exactly. So I'm not going to write the paper. I'm just going to turn on the computer. Right. You're you taking <laughs> some action, some meaningful action. Yeah. Um. Well, I've I've used that strategy many many times. Where I'm like, look, um, all I'm going to do right now is I'm going to open up a Word document and I'm going to save it with the proper label. Yep. Good. Now I know. Now I don't have to do that part. Yep. You know, <laughs> that works for me too. <laughs> yeah. To go get something and come back and say, okay, well then now I'm gonna, um, you know, go ahead and just just put in the title. Yeah. A working title. Okay. Because that I know I'm gonna have to do, and that's the, I can do that right now. You know. Yeah. And then, and then the next thing you know, you just you're not doing everything. You're only doing the next thing, and and uh, that has practically got me through college twice. Yeah. Right? <laughs> just doing that, like really, that's that's powerful.
in neuroscience, they've discovered that a person gets rewarded with brain chemicals, basically dopamine. Right? Yeah. You get rewarded with dopamine, not for the payoff of an action, but for the action that leads to the payoff. Mm -hmm. And this is a really important, fascinating thing to, 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 to grasp, right? So for example, um, take the classic situation where you've got a pigeon and you're teaching the pigeon that if he presses a button with his beak, he's going to get a pellet and gets to eat, right? If you're looking at the brain chemistry of this pigeon, what you find is at first, you know, most people would expect that the pigeon hits the button, the pellet comes, the pigeon eats the pellet, then the dopamine rush comes and right. the pigeon feels pleasure. That is not what happens. <clears throat> nope. When the pigeon learns that the button will give the pellet, it is the pressing the button that creates the dopamine release that causes the pigeon to feel pleasure. Getting the pellet is forgotten. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. what is he thinking about? The next action that will give the dopamine release. So um, this brings up the idea, one of the things I wanted to talk about in this episode is that procrastination is really very similar to delayed gratification. Mm -hmm. Except we look at delayed gratification as a very honorable thing, right? And we look at procrastination as uh, a dishonorable thing. But the same mechanism is occurring. And I think it's nice to talk about this just because of the mental flexibility that it can create. Um, uh, if I were to delay my gratification, this is looked at as a good thing, right? I'm not going to eat something right now. I get skinny. I'm not going to party right now. I'm going to do my homework. I mean, whatever it happens to be, right? That we understand that there is a payoff. There is a future payoff when we delay our gratification. That's the idea, right? Um, and when we procrastinate, there is delayed pain, right? So procrastination is about delaying our pain, some kind of pain, physical, emotional, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And delayed gratification is delaying pleasure. But there's still a delay. And that's what they share in common is the delay, right? So... Um, you ever heard of the marshmallow experiment? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So this is popular. It's, it started in the seventies. I'll just mention it briefly. Um, for those listeners out there that haven't heard about the marshmallow experiment, uh, it was, I believe it was at Stanford mm -hmm. early seventies and it's been repeated and it's been tweaked in different ways o over the years. And they tracked those kids over and, like what, 30 years. Or yeah. Something like yeah. That. Yeah. You know, a bunch of years go by. And, and so what they found is, uh, just real synopsis, real quick synopsis. Um, they would put children in a room and they'd put a marshmallow there and they'd tell them that um, uh, I'm going to leave the room and if you eat the marshmallow, you know, you can eat the marshmallow, but if you wait until I come back, then I'll give you two marshmallows, right? Yeah. So, and it was just like 15 minutes. Too. Yeah, it was 15 minutes, right. Yeah. And so these these kids are sitting in there and they're going, oh, God, I, don't, I don't want the marshmallow. And you can imagine how hilarious this would be yeah. to watch the kids on film, right, <laughs> doing this. And uh, of course, what they found is that the kids that showed um, greater um, ability to delay their gratification and could wait and eat the marshmallow at the end and get their two marshmallows, that of course, tracking them throughout their life found that they did better in life overall. Like for, they had higher SAT scores and they just generally yeah. did better in life. Financially. You know? Yeah, financially. And, and it wasn't related at all to IQ. Yes. Nor was it related to socioeconomic status. 
Right. When they filtered out those things, they, they found mm-hmm. the only thing that really, really mattered was this, what you were referring to, the delayed gratification, right. the ability right. to sense that there'd be something better if they did this and to be able to sacrifice that moment yeah. for something better. Yeah, exactly. And so... The greatest indicator of, of success is that. Is that, yeah. Is yeah. that right there? And then so they've tweaked that experiment and they did some other versions. Like, for example... Um, they would have kids in a room and they would, you know, give them, you know, markers or crayons or something or stickers. And they would tell them that, um, uh, Hey, in a little while, I'm going to give you, you know, better stickers or better markers or crayons. Right. And then they would purposely, purposefully not ever follow through. Hmm. Those kids, when they did the experiment, were more likely to eat the marshmallow because they're like, well, I've just, I've been taught that these people aren't going to follow through. So what's the point in delaying my gratification if, Mm -hmm. you know, I they didn't, they never brought me the stickers. Right. And then when they repeated that experiment with the kids who the promise was followed through with, those kids, of course, showed a better ability to delay their gratification. So the point is it can be learned. Yeah. Delaying your gratification can be learned. And it's a good, it's a good reminder to parents. Yes, it is. It is a very to, good reminder. You know, keep your word to yes, your children. Yes, keep your word. Right. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't bail on your promises. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, Careful or else your promise, kids though. will be failures. Right. Yeah, so, exactly. <laughs> Um, now delayed gratification means I'm going to deny the reality of what I'm feeling for a better payoff. Mm -hmm. Procrastination is very similar. Procrastination is, um, I'm resisting the fact that if I do this thing, it's going to cause me to not suffer. Right. So it's a similar, similar kind of strategy, right? Mm -hmm. Both of them involve, um, not accepting the present moment, right? Except one of those scenarios leads to success somehow. And the other one, um, we all instinctively know that it's not really helping us that much Mm -hmm. to procrastinate. Right. So this brings up the idea that there is a time to wait. And sometimes when you're delaying a decision, it's because you do need more information. Mm -hmm. And I've learned in my life that some of the best decisions I ever made were to do nothing for just a little while longer. Yeah. To allow a process to unfold naturally, to see what is naturally going to occur before I try to jump in and start pulling strings and messing something up. And so that's something that I want to talk about. Mm -hmm. How do you know? How do you know the difference between when I need to wait and when it's time to take action? And so some thoughts on that are that um, I like to ask myself if I'm faced with a decision or a task that I need to do and I notice that I'm delaying, it can be very helpful for me to say or to determine, am I delaying because of my thoughts about the task or am I delaying because that inner stillness in me is informing me that I need, there's something that's missing. There's something else I need to know. Mm -hmm. And so what I do is I really check in with myself and I say, okay, um, I've thought about this situation. And if I'm thinking about it a lot, um, am I just going in circles trying to find more information? Or if I get very still and I say, okay, really, what do I really know about this? Right. And that's the strategy I want to share is is Mm. to become still. and, And here's the way to do that. I become aware of what it is that I need to do. 
then I anchor myself in the present moment by doing these things. I take maybe two seconds, two or three seconds, and I just listen to whatever's around me very briefly. Then the next thing I do is I open up my eyes really, really bright and I pay very close attention to how vivid all the colors are around me. Then I take a moment, another two or three seconds, and I just feel inside me. What do I notice happening inside my body? And then the fourth thing I do is I pay close attention to taking one deep breath. So let me review again, right? I think of the task that I'm delaying on. Mm -hmm. Two or three seconds to listen to everything around me. Two or three seconds to see everything around me vividly. Two or three seconds to feel what's happening inside my body. Two or three seconds to take a mindful breath. Then I'm in a place of presence and stillness. And in that spot, I know, because I can't lie to myself, mm-hmm. I know, if, am I delaying because there's something that's missing or am I delaying because there's the mind telling me to wait? Mm. I'm avoiding discomfort of some sort. Mm-hmm. That strategy has caused me to be honest with myself many, many, many times yes. <laughs> in making decisions. And it does remind me of the teaching in the Hagakure, mm-hmm. the way of the samurai. Mm-hmm where they teach that, you know, basically after weighing, you know, your pros and cons of a situation that a samurai can make a decision within seven breaths. Mm-hmm. Because there is a time when you, you know, you have limited information and it's time for action. How do you take that action? Better do it within seven breaths mm-hmm. <laughs> or you might get your head chopped off. situation that pops up about having to make decisions when you have limited amount of information mm-hmm. and this Which is, is always of, always oh yeah that's you, true we're yeah. never making you decisions never have with all the information yeah right? never yeah and and i think that's one of the biggest reasons we allow ourselves to procrastinate is because i think i need to get more information yeah so in computer science uh they have certain problems that they call optimal stopping problems And an optimal stopping problem means that um, the computer needs to make a decision with limited information, Mm -hmm. and it needs to make a decision about how much information does it need to gather before it makes its decision. And there is an algorithm that has come to the conclusion that the answer to that is 33%. 33%. Hey, everybody. This is Oliver Altine, the show's producer. I just wanted to butt in here for a second and say that the number Satch is actually meaning to say is 37%. He's going to say 33% a bunch of times. It's actually 37 Usually, we fact-check everything on the show before we record it, um, but in this case, it just slipped through. So, yeah, it's not 33 It's 37 So, <laughs> the way it works is, um, and, and, and this came from a, a great book called Algorithms to Live By, um, which is about what us humans can learn about how computers make decisions, right? And so this book gives a wonderful analogy, and I'm just going to use the same analogy because it works so well. Um, apparently in San Francisco, it's really hard to rent an apartment because there's a lot of competition for an apartment. And the problem is that you need to 
almost be ready with your check. <laughs> like you, you, you got to be like the first person there, like the first person to hand a check to the, the owner, like gets the apartment. I mean, it's, it's super competitive. So the problem is, how do you pick an apartment? Because you go and look at one, you're like, I haven't even looked around yet. Yeah. I don't even compare. know what I'm preparing for. Yeah. I don't have anything to compare it to. Right. Yeah. So if you were to use optimal stopping theory, what you would do is you would decide, okay, how much time do I have before I need to rent an apartment? All right. So then you determine what that time is. Maybe you have a month, maybe you have two months, whatever it is. And then you say, well, what would be 33% of that amount of time? And suppose you decide that it's going to be, you know, two days, you know, 33% is two days, two or three days, right? Then what you would do is you would only spend that time looking, you're browsing at apartments. You have no intent to rent any apartments that you look at. Just let it go. Forget it. You're going to just window shop, right? Leave your checkbook at home. Look at as many apartments as you can within that 33% of the time that you have available to yourself. Now, once you've spent that 33% of the time, you actually have some comparisons. You know what you can get for the money. So now you're ready to go. If you go and look at an apartment and now it's time to get an apartment, you go and look and you decide that this is equal to or better than the apartments that I looked at for the price, have no hesitation, hand them your check. Mm -hmm. If you look at it and say, uh, this is not quite as good as what I noticed during my 33% of the time that I was gathering data, then pass. And you can pass with confidence. Uh, this same strategy was used to describe hiring somebody. You need to hire somebody. There could be an unlimited number of resumes coming in and people you could interview. So how many do you interview? Three, 17, 45, how many? There is an optimal time to stop interviewing and make a decision. Because at some point, the next person that comes in could always be the best one, right? Mm -hmm. but, but the reality is, once you've looked at a certain number of people, and you have to determine what that 33% means, uh, time is a great way to look at it, you know? Um, but when, once you've looked at your 33% of the people, then the next person that you meet that is better than anybody you've looked at, hire them you know, equal to or better. And you can make a solid, solid decision. It's a great stat strategy, yeah. actually. Yeah, it really is. You know, I like it. Oh, should I, should I quit my job? Should I move across the country? You know, should I, you know, whatever it is, um, uh, spend 33% of your given time gathering data and then just trust, externalize the process to an algorithm. Uh, it's a pretty smart strategy. Works for computers. Some of what we're talking about crosses over into decision-making yeah, stuff. Definitely. Um, and so I feel naturally pulled to, to kind of talk about where that crosses over because, um, you know, there are a variety of ways that I've learned um, to incorporate decision-making just in, in uh, neuro-linguistic programming. In particular, all the fine work that um, James Sakalos has, has worked, uh, with all of us students, you know, just some of the 
trainings and his descriptions of processes and, and new processes that we've learned, uh, you know, one of them he was conveying actually, uh, I think, originates with John Grinder, one of the co-founders of NLP, and outcomes, consequences, and intentions. Um, you know, if, if you think about anything that you want to decide to do, a lot of times people will, will say they want X, but they don't have a really clear picture of what X would be like. And so if you don't have that, that's the very first thing that needs to happen is, is really, really get a clear picture of what's your end result. Because you do need to start with the end in mind, right? That's one of the mm -hmm. keys to um, reaching your goal yeah. effectively is know what it is that you're doing. So if the, if the outcome is to write a book, and you want to get really, really clear on that outcome, it's a good idea just to, to really think about all the things that would be involved with having that reality be true. So you need to have clear evidence. How would you know when you've done it? Is it just that mm. you wrote 200 pages, or is it that you've got it published, or is it that you know it's really meaningful and that people are giving you compliments? I mean, are there, what other things feed into allowing you to know that you've achieved your goal? You can't just say, oh, write a book. Sure. Because yeah. if you do, you're you're missing out on a lot of layers of reality that have to be there for your mind to feel compelled to do it. Mm -hmm. So you've got to actually get all that feedback loop in, in information really crystal clear, as clear as you can get it. And you can always modify it later, but at least for the time being, if you're doing an exercise like this, just getting super clear on your outcome. Uh, mm -hmm. What's it going to look like? What's it going to sound like? What's it going to feel like? Um, how are you going to see the world differently? What will you absolutely know? What kinds of physical things will you see externally? What kinds mm -hmm. of things will you begin to picture in your internal visual? Uh, what are you going to be hearing? How will you hear the world differently? What will you be saying differently? Hmm. Um, how does this change things? How is this a game changer for you? Right? Um, you know, what are you going to be feeling when you know you've achieved it? How do you know you'll achieve it? Um, what's it going to be like? How would you be holding yourself, breathing? Uh, what would be your posture when, you, when you're thinking about how you just achieved this thing? Uh, what physical thing would you be doing differently? Mm. Uh, how will you be walking around as this new person who's achieved that? I mean, there's a whole lot of questions you could ask to tune yeah, into yeah. getting a real, clicture of, a real clear picture of the outcome. Um, and there might be layers of things too, like... Um, I've written this book and it's selling on Amazon and uh, people are writing reviews that are positive and there might be a whole bunch of stuff. People are inviting me because I'm the, the uh, author of this best-selling book. They're inviting me to come speak. Yeah, so there might be yeah. a lot of associated things that have to do with your outcome. Mm -hmm. That's a clear picture. But you also have to ask yourself, what are the consequences? Okay. Consequences are neither good nor bad. Sure. Yeah. Sometimes people hear consequences and they cringe, like, oh, oh my God. Yeah. You know? uh -huh. But consequences are also positive. I mean, you sell a lot of books, you're going to, one of the consequences is that you're going to get paid for it. Uh, you become known as a best selling author. One of the consequences is that people will look at you as a best selling author and perhaps give you opportunities that you didn't have before. Yeah. You may also, as a, con a consequence, feel like you can write more books because you achieved that. There are all sorts of things that could happen as a sure, result. Sure. Uh, but another consequence might be to have achieved this, you will have had to organize your time differently. 
you might not be able to do all those Netflix binge watching things that you used to do. You might have Darn to it. for a time be different. Yeah. So right. that's a consequence. You might find that uh, there are people in your life who are very demanding, getting very, very upset with you because you're not spending enough time with them. So you really have to consider the ecology, right? Yeah. But also just what are the natural consequences of achieving this? You got to assume that when you're doing the, the exercise of checking in, mm. that you've achieved it. So in other words, the question is, what will have to be there? What will have to have happened? What decisions will you have made? What choices will you have made in order to have achieved that? What will naturally come as a result? Hmm. What will you have done up to that point and what will happen after? So that's consequences. Right. That helps you really see what you need to do right now. Right. Get, and then, then you'll, yeah. you'll back up and you'll say, all right, um, is there anything about those consequences that modify your original, inte- your original outcome? Because if you start running through the consequences and you start feeling a little bit funny about your outcome, then you might need to adjust either the consequences or the, or the outcome. Like maybe there's some other things you need, another way to get to um, that outcome. Yeah. That would be adjusting the okay. uh, consequences. Or it may be that you need to adjust the outcome to add something in or take something away that allows the consequences to be modified a bit. Or it just may, you know, the consequences may just let you know, it may alert you to the fact that you'll need to add something to your outcome because that's just what's natural. Like it, it just, it's automatic that these mm-hmm. two things are linked together. Mm-hmm. So it helps you to explore that cognitively. Yeah. And then the other thing is you have to ask yourself, what are my underlying intentions for achieving that outcome? That would be things like immediate and recent intentions. I've just been feeling like I really need to to author a book uh, because I need to feel more of a sense of um, authority, being an authority in my my field. Maybe I need to be more of a thought leader, and so I, I need to create this avenue from which people will begin to respect me differently or more. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a recent thing. But then you have to go back even further, like the question of back in the day, maybe years ago, what led me to this place where I began to have this intention to write this book? Mm -hmm. In other words, some of those things might not be nice. You may have been told that you would never be a writer. You'll you'll never be good enough. And something inside of you, maybe an insecurity, said, "You know what? Damn it! I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to, I'm going to make this happen." Right. And, and and the real reason you're writing the book is to prove Dad wrong, or right. something like that. Exactly. It could be some away from types of emot- motivations, which isn't a bad thing. It doesn't necessarily mean you need to change any of that, but you have to explore if you really want to bulletproof the outcome. You've got to explore consequences and intentions. And when you're in the intentions category, asking those questions, you have to be brutally honest with yourself. Absolutely, because mm. there might be some things that are negative, but they're actually important and they need to be there. Mm. And you could also realize that maybe they don't need to be there and maybe you could achieve that without it. It's not really a cookie cutter type of situation. It's more like you have to modify it as you see fit. You have to invoke the wisdom of your experience and your intelligence into the situation and make decisions on the fly right there when you're doing the investigation. Mm -hmm. So then you would look at the intentions and ask yourself the question, hey, is there anything in this intention right here 
that needs modification or affects my outcome in some way that I don't like. So in relation to the outcome, does the intention need any adjustment? Do I need to get clearer? Do I need to shift something, change something? Or is there anything in the outcome that needs modification as a result of the information I got when I was exploring my underlying intentions? Hmm. Because as you start to explore it, more ideas will come. So then you kind of look at your life, you kind of imagine that you're floating over your whole situation. You got these three different things you're looking at. If that looks perfect, and definition of perfect in this situation is it feels compelling, you really want this, you're ready to start kicking ass and taking names, you're, you're going to make this happen. If that's how you feel, there's no modification necessary. If you're like, um, yeah, and it's not quite 100% mm-hmm. congruent, mm-hmm. then you check in. Is it my consequences, my outcome, or my intentions that need to shift? And you make okay. those changes and you just, I don't know, close your eyes, put that intention in there really, really clear, and then check again. And basically, once you've done that and you, you want to make no modifications whatsoever because everything's exactly as it should be, then you just kind of affirm, okay, when do I get started? Mm. That's like the next piece. Great. Wow. It's super effective that's for helping great. people and just like getting dialed in. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. Bulletproofing outcomes. Bulletproofing outcomes. outcomes. Yeah. That's great. I already want to start doing that with right? things. Yeah. That's wonderful. Um, Something I wanted to talk about mm-hmm. with this whole um, idea of procrastinating, which, like as you said, this, it really is about making a decision. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the decision to go ahead and start to take action, right? Is I think um, what we've talked about before, Morita therapy. Oh yeah, is another way of uh, approaching procrastination. And so, uh, briefly, Morita therapy was, um, you know, Morita was a Japanese. Um, Japanese therapist, I guess, yeah. would be the, the, the right word, who mm-hmm. used a very different system to like modern psychotherapy. And um, there's this three-step process in Morita therapy that really does help you deal with situations. And I have relied on this for several years now, is just to do these three things. Know your purpose, accept all of your feelings, and do what needs to be done. One, mm-hmm. two, three. Yep. Know your purpose, accept all of your feelings, and do what needs to be done. Yep. Yeah. And um, that is so simple. It helps clarify. It acknowledges where you're at. It acknowledges where you need to go. <laughs> you know, once you've done those two things, and it's okay to go ahead and start, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and... Uh, uh, something I learned from you once on one of our runs is uh, you, you were telling me some stories about you and somebody else practicing some techniques and mm-hmm. things and how you were just, and this always stuck with me, that you guys were just going, okay, three, two, one, go. Yeah. There's something about a countdown yeah. <laughs> that works better than counting up. <laughs> yeah. If I go, okay, on three, one, two, three, okay, on five, yeah. four, five, right? Yeah. But if you go... But you, you feel like once you reach zero, that there's you have to right. Yeah. There's no right. Three, two, one, go right. So, so I like to add that yeah. right. So know your purpose, accept all your feelings, do what needs to be done. Three, two, one, go. Yeah, that's great. You know, <laughs> I was gonna say because the three by themselves are so they're kind of like so chunked up that unless like if you had a real problem with anything, you'd need something t- to get you going. Yeah. If you don't have a problem with anything, it's great because it's like very big broad chunks you know yeah um 
but the three, two, one brings it into a little bit more of like, okay, take action right yeah, now, do it. Really, right, really, right, right. There's urgency in that. <laughs> totally, I like that. Yeah, it's a good thing. The three, two, one's great. Three, two, yeah. one's great. And and um, you know, when you do that, um, it helps put you into. It, it calms the mind. I find it. It sort of mm-hmm. quiets the noise. Mm-hmm. Three, two, one, go. I'm always in a state of like no mind. Yeah. At that point, it's like my mind is like frozen. Great. I want it to be frozen. I want to just, I just want to act from presence, you mm-hmm. know? And um, it brings up the idea of Wu Wei. Yeah. You know, Wu Wei, because procrastination is, is, is a mind game. And Wu Wei is that Taoist concept of non doing, mm-hmm. which doesn't mean not to do, it's to do only for the sake of doing with no attachment to the results you know, is, is to do naturally, right. To do from a place of nowhere. And uh, I've always loved that concept of Wu Wei. Yeah. We've talked about it a lot. Um, but three, two, one go automatically puts me <laughs> in kind of a Wu Wei mindset, you know, I'm, yeah. just, I'm just one, you know, three, two, one non-doing. Yep. I'm non-doing while I'm doing, you know, <laughs> and it's, and it's, and it handles it for me. Um, I think maybe where, I really started to practice that, and this is probably my grand culmination of, of advice on on how to do things is um, having to do caregiver tasks, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. As a caregiver myself, um, there's a lot of tasks that need to be done when I'm tired or not in the mood or really want to be doing something else. You know, I um, have to do what needs to be done, though, right? And so, you know, I know my purpose. My purpose is to be an incredible, responsible, loving caregiver, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I accept my feelings about it. I'm tired. I'd rather not do this, right? But I know what needs to be done. So um, I'm going to do what needs to be done. But here's how I do that part. Sometimes I'll do the countdown. Another time, um, most of the time, what I do is I'll become very still almost like I'm frozen, but I'm totally relaxed, not tense frozen, mm-hmm. like asleep frozen, right? And I'll be like looking at, maybe perhaps I'm, I'm looking at my wife in bed, I need to get her up or something, you know, it's going to be a challenging, difficult task, right? And I notice that deep inside my chest, there is a place that is completely still. It's like a vacuum that um, is a little, little piece of outer space, a little piece of the universe, that's in the center of my chest. And in me, the way I, I do it is it starts in my chest and it's like, it's like a vacuumous flame, like a candle flame mm. that goes from my chest all the way up into my head. So it takes up that whole space mm-hmm. from chest to like somewhere in the center of my forehead. And I notice that that flame is totally, completely silent and still. And from that nothingness, Boom, I start to move and I just do the thing that needs to be done. Interesting. That's how I do it. That's useful. That's how I do it. Yeah. Um, I don't know where that came from. I don't know how that's, I just noticed that, oh my God, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. Because, you know, that's, that's obviously idiosyncratic to you. You discovered this, you, Mm -hmm. you figured that out inside yourself. Yeah. I wonder um, how others might search for something like that. That sounds very useful. And it's funny, as the more I think about it, I realize that well, what I do is I feel that. And when it's time to take action, the uh-huh. first action I take with it is I rock back and move forward. 
All right. So there's an added component there. There's another piece. Yeah. So. Yeah, I love that the, the somatic element mm. is so important. That's become more and more important. Mm. Um, and even with stuff like, like uh, procrastination, it does help to have someone who's trained to look at you and actually visually see uh-huh. what's going on in the body. Like when I work with clients, I'm looking at their face, I'm looking at their gestures, I'm listening to the tone of voice. I'm using as much as my, of my senses as I can mm-hmm. because there may be little subtle indicators. So if I ask them about something that they do well and they're suddenly their posture straightens up and they become symmetrical, mm. mm-hmm. that's kind of an important indicator. Yeah, sure. So later on when it's they're just, trying to solve the there. problem and yeah. they're asymmetrical and all sunken and yeah. shoulders hunched, then I'm going to yeah. ask them to adopt the physiology of excellence, really. Yeah. The physiology of, of when they're doing well mm. whilst they're working on the problem so that they can access a resource to apply to the problem. Yeah. So they can fix it, basically. Yeah, it makes sense. That's great. There's a sequence that... I read about and I thought it was fabulous. It was okay. a sequence of how to deal with procrastination more strategically. Sounds good. The first step sounds kind of funny, but you create a not to do list. <laughs> okay. I like this already. Yeah. You get, you get like a really clear idea of what's off the table. Like, you know what? Checking Facebook is off the table right now. Uh-huh. Right. Um, you know, right, right, right. Um, you know, scanning through YouTube cat videos is off the table right now. <laughs> But along with your not to do list, um, knowing that it's not reasonable to expect you to be having full concentration for longer than 90 minutes at a time, Mm -hmm. create some freaking breaks and don't make the breaks long breaks, make them 15 to 20 minutes, Mm -hmm. but take a break every 90 minutes. The US Army did Mm -hmm. studies on this and they found people were so much more productive. They had more energy. They had more stamina to work longer if they took a break every 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, That's pretty important. Yeah. And if you delineate very carefully what you're going to do during those 15 to 20 minutes, make sure that it's pleasurable and it's not something you can get lost in easily. Mm, So do some thinking. So if you really want to master your procrastination, sit down with a piece of paper and actually do what I'm saying. Write out what am I gonna what's what's not okay on my not okay list that I'm not gonna do when I'm doing this productive stuff. Yeah, we don't go to lunch at eleven ten. Right. Right. And what's on my um, pleasure list for the fifteen to twenty minute break that isn't so absorbing that it would just get me lost in it. Okay, so nothing down the the whole, the Facebook social media hole, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want to mm-hmm. nothing like that. Um, the second thing is pre-committing in a public way to what it is that you want to do. Okay. Now, public doesn't necessarily mean social media, but if you are going to use social media, you might as well. It can also be to a group of friends. It could be like, hey, you know what? I'm going to do this. Um, this, this includes things like co-work. You know, you decide to get together and work on your shit, right? Mm-hmm. Go to a coffee shop. You're all working on stuff. So you can be social, but you're getting some stuff done. Mm. And they know you're there to do it. So there's a bit of a sense of commitment once we tell someone else that we've got to do it or we're going to do it. Mm-hmm. We know that 
at least at a subconscious level, even if they don't call us on it, there's a feeling of feeling like, oh, I committed to this, I got to do it. It's a bit like imagining someone's following you around with a, uh, you know, a news team. Yeah. You behave right. differently when you yeah, think totally, about that. And that's, totally. that's actually an evolutionary biology thing. We, uh-huh. we wouldn't have survived if we didn't have that gene to want to not dis- disappoint people. Mm-hmm. Because um, part of survival is working in groups. And when you're shunned, mm-hmm. your chance of survival goes down. So we have this biological imperative that feels like it needs to do what it says. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some people are thinking, yeah, well, how about all those liars that don't do what they say? Well, that's true, but mm-hmm. they're also not going to keep their friends very long. Yeah. So in nature, there's there's less of that, right? The third thing, so we have we have you know create a not to do list and create breaks for yourself is step one. Step two is pre commit publicly. Mm-hmm. Step three is to set up barriers to quote unquote takedown activities. That means you've got to actually put a strategy in to prevent the things that you said are on your not-to-do list. So if there's, an, um, let's say, an app that you can use that blocks uh, certain social media sites and things that you know are, are problem or offending sites, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's an app called Cold Turkey. That's just one of them mm-hmm. that you can download to okay. do that. Or just figure it out. You know, um, maybe you have set up with your kids that, um, you know, what are the protocols here? Um, you can interrupt me if it's, if it's an emergency, absolutely under all conditions. However, between this period and this period, you guys will be doing your own thing and maybe engaging in your own activities and I'm not to be disturbed except for an emergency. Yeah. If there's blood or fire. Right. Pretty much. Um, there are things you can do like, you know, um, put yourself on do not disturb on your phone so that you can't possibly be disturbed for a couple of hours. Mm-hmm. There's any number of things you can do to create barriers to it. Yeah. Uh, not have the TV on so that you're not seeing something that, that, yeah. that pulls you away. So that's setting up barriers um, to the takedown activities. Step number four is basically get into or find your groove. Everyone has a rhythm that kicks in once they start doing something. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a period of time that they say really, really matters, and it's two and a half to four hours after you wake up. That's okay. your most productive part of okay. your day. Two and a half to four hours after you wake up. Okay. Exactly. So there's that sweet spot in your day that you should be occupying with the things that you want to get done because that's your most efficient time. Mm-hmm. And uh, spend your time doing it because once you start, you're going you're gonna to create like a gear shift where it feels like it's easier to do it yeah. for a period of time. The fifth thing is um, we got to deal with the mental stuff, the mental chatter. So there's this paralysis of analysis problem that mm-hmm. comes up where you mm-hmm. are overthinking what you're doing, and that's not helpful. So the fifth piece is to either chunk up to you know what's the purpose behind all of this, why am I doing it, or chunk down to what's something right now that I can do specifically that will make a difference. Okay, um, and start doing what you're doing at least for five minutes, even if uh, it's not perfect. If you write those first sentence or two, you know, you get something on paper, like you said, where you, you know, list it up at the top, that gets something done and it starts the pilot light, mm-hmm. so to speak. Yeah. Um, the sixth step is shifting from feeler to thinker mode. Okay. Because in feeler mode, you're feeling, I don't know, I don't want to do this. Oh man, I just, oh, I'm dreading this. Oh my God. That's feeler mode. Yeah. Thinker mode says, 
yes, and I've got 36 hours to complete this. And, um, you know, a certain amount of that time is going to be in bed sleeping. So how much actual time do I have? This has got to get done. Mm -hmm. And if I do this, I will be able to have lots of time for play afterward. Mm -hmm. Thinker mode says, if I do a little bit now, I won't have to do it all at the end. Yeah. Thinker mode says there are strategies. We can take action. We can do a little bit. We can get into the groove. Mm. So that's why. Yeah. Just, just acknowledging that there's a feeler mode versus a thinker mode. Yeah. That alone helps. Yeah. Because feeler mode's great for other things. Not so good for, yeah. um, you know, procrastination issues. Yeah. Uh, the seventh piece of the eight is make goals for your future self. Because your present self is experiencing what you're experiencing, but the future self says, all right, what do I want to be feeling? Get really clear and write out a couple of these things. Decide you know, what your future self is needing to achieve. Get really clear on that so you have something to focus on. Mm-hmm. And then the eighth step is manage your self-talk. Because what you cognitively say to yourself mm-hmm. makes a difference. If you don't change that dialogue you won't be able to modify your feelings in a way that's positive. You'll be modifying it in a way that's negative. You'll make it much tougher on yourself. So be careful of the narration in your head. That's self-hypnosis. It's suggestion. And uh, it's very important that you manage that by making the achievement of what it is you're going to do more juicy. Make it delicious. Make it amazing. Make it fan-fucking-tastic. That if when you get this done you're going to feel like, you know, a million bucks and you're going to take over the world. I mean, just really, really make it juicy. Um, and then one tiny little hack that's kind of a subcategory is chew bubble gum. Chew bubble gum. Yes. I love it. Chew bubble gum because <laughs> the studies have shown repeatedly mm. that when people chew bubble gum, they wake up, they're a little bit less tired, they're a little mm. more focused and they stay on task for longer statistically. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a neuromotor kind of thing, but something about chewing gum. Yeah. Maybe it's the peppermint oil in it, who knows, <laughs> the menthol, but it does yeah. tend to help people to stay on task. Mm. So if you're feeling like you're slipping, you know, whip out the Wrigley's, whip out you know, the, Wrigley's. the Trident, the That's uh, great. Orbits or whatever the hell you chew. That's great. I yeah. Love Excellent hacks. Yeah. Those are good. Yeah. All right. You know, Carlos, I think we finally got this episode done. We did. Maybe we should just procrastinate about releasing it for a little while. What do you yeah, think? yeah. Well, f- uh, recording the episode was pre-crastination, but who knows when we're going to release it. Yeah, you never know. That'll be the procrastination. We'll see if Oliver is going to put it off for later. Yeah, we'll find out. You've been listening to The Authenticity Show with your hosts, Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. My name is Oliver Altine. I record, edit, and produce the show. I also wrote the theme music, which you're listening to right now. And the interstitial music this time was a new song I'm working on. I call it Purple Fox. Now, Purple Fox is the alias of our publicity manager, Tina, who is awesome, and I was thinking about her when I wrote this song, so I named it after her. Please subscribe to The Authenticity Show wherever you get your podcasts and find us on social media. Send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us a topic you want us to talk about or suggest a guest. We're open to that. And you can find our website at authenticityshow.com. Thanks for listening and have an authentic day.